continue our series called Finding God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21. This is right after the birth of Isaac. The child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite movies is the quirky indie film Elizabethtown. The movie follows a young man named Drew Baylor who travels from Oregon to Louisville, Kentucky to retrieve the body of his father who had died of a heart attack while visiting family there. Staying in the same hotel as Drew in Louisville is a rather boisterous wedding party holding both bachelor and bachelorette parties in the rooms right next to Drew's. And as Drew is standing in the hallway talking to his new friend, Claire, the groom, Chuck, stumbles out of his room. Now, Chuck is decently inebriated and can't quite handle the paradox when he finds out why Drew is in town. He pulls both Drew and Claire into a big bear hug and exclaims, death and life and life and death right next door to each other. And then he stumbles back to his party. Death and life and life and death 
right next door to each other. Or in the words of Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. This is certainly the case for Father Abraham in our scripture reading this morning. It is the best of times, it is the worst of times. Abraham has spent his life waiting for God to fulfill his promises of a son, of establishing a great people through Abraham. And it doesn't look like God is going to come through on things until finally, when Abraham is 99 years old, God tells him and his wife, Sarah, that they are going to have a son. We're going to look more closely at this story in a couple weeks. But God's promise comes true. When he is 100 years old, Abraham becomes the father of Isaac. And this is cause, of course, for much celebration. Abraham wants to celebrate this fulfillment of the promise, to express his joy and delight. So to mark the occasion of his son being weaned, he throws a big old party for his household and his neighbors, a day to celebrate his son. There's just one problem here. Abraham already has a son. About 16 years earlier, when Abraham was fretting about being an old man and still being childless, Sarah decided that he should marry her slave woman, Hagar, so maybe she could give him a son. And so Abraham marries Hagar, and lo and behold, Ishmael is born. And now Sarah has a problem. Abraham could have just taken Hagar as a a mistress or a concubine, but in order for her son to be his son in the fullest sense, to count as an heir, he had to give her the full status of wife, just like Sarah. Hagar is as much a wife as Sarah, and Ishmael is as much Abraham's son, as much his heir as Isaac is. And Sarah won't stand for this. It is her son, after all, that is the answer to God's promises. It will be her son, unopposed, that will carry on the line and become the father of a great nation. So she carries in her this deep resentment towards Hagar and Ishmael, a fear of the threat they pose to her and Isaac. And at this party for her son, in which they celebrate her son entering this new phase in his life, she snaps. She sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac, or laughing with Isaac. The original text could be read either way. Ishmael could very well have been mocking Isaac, or perhaps Sarah sees what she wants to see. Either way, she decides he has to go and tells Abraham to send both him and his mother away. This leaves Abraham in quite some distress. He loves both his sons, after all. He does not want to banish his firstborn child. But somewhat surprisingly, God tells Abraham to do what Sarah has instructed, because whatever her motives might be, She's right. It's Isaac 
through whom Abraham's line will be established. But God also assures Abraham that he will take care of Ishmael. And so early in the morning, perhaps to avoid questioning eyes, perhaps to get it done and over with, Abraham sends Hagar, hands Hagar some bread and some water and sends her and her son away. We don't know what this leave-taking was like. Did Hagar scream and plead? Did the boy look in bewilderment at his father? And why did Abraham not at least give them enough food and water to get them safely to the next town? The author doesn't tell us. But however sorrowful the moment of leaving might have been, it only gets worse. The food and water eventually run out. Hagar and her son are left in a desert, a wilderness, with no way to get food and no way to get water. There is no way out of this. There is only death in front of them. And Hagar, unable to bear the sight of her son wasting away, sits him under what little shade she can find and leaves him, sitting herself where she cannot see him or hear him. And this final leave taking, having taken place, she sits in the wilderness and cries. It doesn't take much to land us in a wilderness. One day we're celebrating at a party The next, we're cast into a desert. Life and death, and death and life, right next door to each other. We wake up one day and look around at the barren landscape surrounding us, and we ask, how did we get here? Sometimes our wildernesses are acute, and our descent into the desert has been swift. A family member is diagnosed with a life-threatening disease or condition, or we are diagnosed with a life-threatening disease or condition, and the landscape of our next days and months looks very different. Someone we love dies at the end of a long life or far too young, and we are left with questions and doubt and the impossible task of figuring out who we are now without them. We're let go from our job, and we leave carrying our box of personal items and our feelings of betrayal and anxiety as we think about what's next and how we're going to pay the bills. Sometimes our wildernesses are a bit more ambiguous, harder to name, but still present, undergirding our days with a sense of loss or a fear of loss. The pandemic certainly has brought us into a wilderness. We might have found a bit of shade now, the worst might be behind us, but we are left with the trauma of the last two years, with all the fear and deep anxiety we held, with the losses of what was normal and what we could count on, and so we're, we're trying to rebuild, but life is still anything but normal. We're tired, we're worn out, 
we're anxious, we're in a wilderness. In the Christian Reformed Church and in our church, the last year or two of discussion around human sexuality and Synod's decision in June has led us into a wilderness. People have already left our church over the decision. Others are wondering whether they can stay. Others are bewildered that we're having this conversation in the first place. And so they're wondering about their own place in the church. We notice people aren't here. And we don't know if it's because of COVID or holidays or the human sexuality report. And so we're left with deep anxiety and a fear of potential loss. What if we lose members? What if we leave and we lose this church community? It's a wilderness. And all of these things are happening in a world filled with an ever-increasing amount of change. The sands seem to be shifting beneath our feet more and more rapidly. Ray Kurzweil, the director of engineering at Google, said in an article that the 21st century will be equivalent to 20,000 years of progress at today's rate of progress. Organizations have to be able to redefine themselves at a faster and faster pace. Charles Pierce, a sports writer talking about college football, of all things, wrote, we are in some sort of unstable period right now. Nothing seems solid. Nothing seems permanent. The tectonic plates of our institutions, all of our institutions, seem to be grinding loose, and all the questions begin, how can you still? How can you still believe in politics? go to that church, or trust your money to that bank. Indeed, a recent Gallup poll suggests that between a quarter and half of the people interviewed describe themselves as disaffected and discouraged as they walk through life. We have lost trust in the things we once held to, and we've lost hope that good things will emerge. We are in a wilderness. And something happens to us when we're in a wilderness. Our vision narrows. Our capacity for imagination, for a vision of the future, disappears. We cling to what we know, to the past, to some modicum of certainty. The Israelites, when God was leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, crumbled at the first sign of trouble. With no food or water, they began to clamor about returning to Egypt, returning to slavery, returning to what they knew, because at least they knew it. They suffered, said Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, something worse than death, the death of their imagination. In the wilderness, we don't even know what to ask for. We can't imagine a way out. We don't have the words to express what we need. And we're disillusioned. 
We're not even always sure that God is listening to us in the first place. In the wilderness, sometimes all we can do is sit under whatever bit of shade we can find and cry. This isn't the first time Hagar has found herself wandering in the wilderness. When she became pregnant with Ishmael, she started to despise Sarah. Sarah didn't take too kindly to this, so she started to mistreat Hagar, putting her in her place. So Hagar fled into the desert. And near a spring of water, an angel of the Lord found Hagar and asked her what was wrong. Where have you come from, the angel asks, and where are you going? Well, Hagar doesn't know where she's going, but she knows where she's been. I fled my mistress, she says. The angel tells her to return, promising Hagar that her son will be the first of many descendants, that God will protect her and her child. And so Hagar names God there in the wilderness. She's one of only a few characters in Scripture who names God. She calls him the God who sees me and says literally, I have now seen the one who sees me. And I wonder, as she sits in the desert now, if she remembers this encounter, if she has the capacity, the imagination to recall. But whether she does or does not doesn't really matter because it is God who is the active participant in that name. It is God who is doing the scene, and God always remembers. You know, it's interesting in this chapter, if you look at it, Ishmael is not named once. He is the son of Hagar, or the boy. He is forgotten. His personhood is stripped away from him in an effort to remove him from the story. But if you were to read the Hebrew text of this story, you will in fact find the name Ishmael. It's right at the beginning of verse 17, which starts, Vaishma Elohim. The va is but. Ishma is he heard. And Elohim, which is often shortened to El, is God. Ishma El, God heard. God does not only see us in the wilderness, he hears us in the wilderness. And he doesn't just hear us when we come with our proper prayers and our articulate questions or our accurate descriptions of things. He hears us when all we can do is weep, when we don't even know what to ask for, when we are so bewildered that we've lost our ability to imagine how God might step in and fix this. God doesn't wait for us to speak. He hears us. And he doesn't wait for us to see. He sees us. And then he opens our eyes to see the well of water, to see how he is present to us, to see how he has not forgotten us, 
God does not wait for us to find him in the wilderness. God finds us. In fact, he never loses sight of us at all. These last few months have been a season of wilderness for me. They have held a lot of loss and a lot of change, both acute and unexpected and more nebulous and hard to name. There have been weeks when it has been hard for me to do normal devotions, when I've just been angry, when my faith has felt frail, when I have not even known what to ask God for. And I know all the songs about clinging to the rock that is Jesus, about resting on our firm foundation. But if I'm honest, sometimes it is hard to feel that foundation beneath me. I know it's there. I will say as your pastor, I know that it is there. But sometimes it just feels like I'm on the waves. So a few weeks ago when I was looking for a piece of art to buy Emma as a thank you, and I saw another piece, I knew I had to buy it. It's by the artist Scott Erickson, and it has been immeasurably comforting to me. It's a simple image of a ship tossed about by waves, but the waves are contained within the hands of God. There is no rock or anchor mooring the ship. There is no beacon of light to which the ship must sail to reach safety. It is cast upon the waters. But even there, it is held by the presence of God. And at the very bottom of the hands are the words we hear so often in Scripture. Be not afraid. In this world you will have troubles, Jesus says to his disciples. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. God is not a place to reach within the wilderness. God holds the wilderness. And he sees us and hears us, even when we cannot see and cannot speak ourselves. So whether it is the best of times or the worst of times, God is there. Whether we are in the room full of partiers or are silent next door in our grief, God is there. For neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Blessed be his name. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, our God, draw near to us when we are in the wilderness. Open our eyes to see your gentle presence. Open our ears to hear your voice. Hold us fast when we are tossed about by storms. Quench our thirst in the desert. Remind us that you do not leave us or forsake us. And if we are not right now in a wilderness, if all is sunlit and filled with joy and we are filled with strength and buoyancy, 
Use that strength to lift up others. Help us walk alongside one another in love and gentleness, that you might use us to be a well for those who thirst, a safe haven for those unmoored. In all things, God, may we know your faithfulness, the faithfulness you showed to Abraham and Isaac, the faithfulness you showed to Hagar and Ishmael. We love you, we trust you, and we give our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.